0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Again, for the third time in a row, it's just going to be me. I know there's some people out there who're probably like, "What the fuck again?" I'm gonna have to listen to this dude rant for God knows how long—hour to two hours, sometimes three hours. He's even made 14-hour podcasts where he's just talking. Yes going to be me again by myself but i hope that that will be outweighed by the fact that i suddenly fell back into the anthrax rabbit hole the 2001 anthrax attacks the amerithrax rabbit hole something that i've been looking at for over 10 years now maybe even longer than that i started by making a pretty in retrospect, kind of amateur documentary, a 40-minute long, somewhere in between a short film and a full-length film documentary about the subject called American Anthrax, sort of picking through the different narratives which I thought poked the most interesting holes in the FBI's investigation of the attacks. I continued to look into it. Um, I linked up with other researchers who had done their own research on the subject that was way deeper than what i was doing at the time you know i was mostly pulling from media clips sort of creating a you know what i thought was a compelling narrative to go against what the official story was and i did it without any narration then i ran into people like graham mcqueen some other people in the community put me in touch with him we started talking his research blew me away he wrote the 2001 anthrax deception which has so many different threads in it and so many different, I would characterize them as new finds and new revelations of the 2001 anthrax attacks that it's hard to pin down a specific one that's that's really, really worth honing in on and isolating. But on the previous episode of Media Roots Radio, the one where we went through Boca Raton, Sarasota, American Media Inc., where the first anthrax murder took place. We established some connections between, some odd connections that I'm, I'm not even going to really speculate on what I think that they mean, but some odd and unusual connections between the 9-11 hijackers' activities and residences and the crime scene of and people that are linked to the 2001 Anthrax murders. So I showed you those things that, in the last episode, now some of that stuff was originally inspired by Graham McQueen. The whole concept of making a map about Florida and the 9-11 hijackers and their activities and the weird flight schools they went to was inspired by Daniel Hopsaker. So, slapped on top of that, Graham McQueen's research from the 2001 Anthrax Deception fleshed more detail out in terms of locations of people that he mentions in his book. People that the FBI even were looking at as potential suspects originally, but then suddenly, you know, went away from, like, for example, Mike and Gloria Irish. I've been going back and forth a lot with a few other people. Uh, One of them is one of my favorite researchers and guests on this podcast, Gumby for Christ, otherwise known as just Gumby. He goes in sort of unusual, and obscure directions with his research, and so do I. Maybe the inspiration of the 9-11 20th anniversary, um, the fact that there's a lot of other people coming out with new things. Ben Howard, a.k.a. House Trotter on Twitter, Aaron Good, DJ Thermal Detonator is putting out some good stuff about the World Trade Center 93 bombing, things Grandma Queen is writing again about anthrax. So I've been inspired by some of the things he's been digging up. I went back to one of his old anthrax threads, Gumby's I'm talking about. Gumby just came across something that we weren't looking for i don't think he was even specifically looking for anything in particular but he came across a really really interesting story that i think once you actually combine it and cross-reference it with some of the other stories at the time right after the anthrax murders started it really actually turns the entire anthrax case upside down once you really examine what the implications of this are gonna tease it at first because I want to actually get into this. This is going to be a large part of this podcast is what are these new revelations of the 2001 anthrax attacks based around a series of very mysterious hoax letters that were sent through the mail with fake anthrax in them. And guess where these hoax letters were sent from St. Petersburg, Florida. So in a weird way, this also connects to the sort of Florida map of how, There's strange overlap between the 9-11 hijackers activities and the anthrax attacks. But again, we have another Florida connection where the timelines are also very close together. Now there's not much happening in my interactive Florida map about St. Petersburg so that's not really a huge deal in and of itself that this was in Florida. It wasn't really near anything that's really notable on the map. So I don't want you to get distracted by that. But It being in Florida is still extremely notable and throws a wrench in the entire anthrax investigation, in my opinion. Now, I'm not a handwriting analyst, I'm not a forensic expert, I'm not a trained investigator of any kind. But based on what I've seen from this information, and I'm even talking about photographic evidence, and you probably have it spoiled already by looking at the thumbnail of this podcast. But if you want to fast forward to what the thumbnail of this podcast is actually showing, go about 20 minutes from now into the podcast. If you just want to go straight to the meat of these new revelations that we're going to talk about today about the anthrax attacks and how I believe that it makes it virtually impossible, way more impossible than before, that Bruce Ivins, the suspect That the FBI said was the killer that he was working alone or that he was involved that these hoax letters that I'm going to tell you about specifically one of them because we have photographic evidence of it we know what it looks like and one of these letters throws a huge wrench in this idea that Bruce Ivins is the 2001 anthrax murderer now I should say that we have photographic evidence that makes this particular letter really compelling But all four of these hoax letters, when you take them all together for various reasons, which I will explain, they become a compelling counterpoint to the entire case against Bruce Ivins. Or at the very least, that Bruce Ivins worked alone. Now, I'm not suggesting that I've learned any new information or read anything that's convinced me that somehow Bruce Ivins was more involved than I previously thought. My opinion has actually remained consistent that Bruce Ivins is probably not the person responsible for the 2001 anthrax murders or the letters that were sent in the mail. Now, I do think we need to start separating some of these things out a little bit more because to imply that the anthrax attacks was just these four letters that were sent through the mail, you know, had weaponized anthrax powder in them, those were the murder weapons. We're missing a lot of the trees for the forest, so to speak. It's, it's sort of a, I, I think it's, it's wrapping it too neatly up into a narrative bow. Because the four letters that were retrieved were addressed to the New York Post, Tom Brokaw of NBC News, Tom Daschle, Senator Tom Daschle, Senator Patrick Leahy in Washington, D.C., Those were the four letters that were eventually retrieved by the FBI. The fifth letter that was apparently sent to the National Enquirer AMI building in Boca Raton, Florida, was never retrieved by the FBI. There's only a witness account about receiving a strange letter to their building that seemingly came before the other anthrax letters that I just described arrived at their destinations. That anthrax letter does not follow the pattern of the other four. It was made to look like a stalker letter to Jennifer Lopez that had contained in it many weird pieces of trash and strange objects like an empty tobacco tin and an empty carton of laundry detergent. It also had inside of it a tiny necklace that was the Star of David. This follows a completely different style of attack or murder weapon than the other anthrax letters because the other anthrax letters actually said things like death to america death to israel we have anthrax take penicillin now allah is great those anthrax letters were meant to look like they were muslim terrorists attacking various journalists and politicians those anthrax letters had real anthrax in them someone somehow sent real anthrax to the ami building Whether it came to the regular mail system or not, we don't know for sure because we don't have the letter to see if it had been stamped by a postal meter or what. We don't know if someone physically delivered a letter inside, snuck into the building and just dropped it into the mailroom, because again, we don't have a stamped letter. We also don't know if this letter that was described as arriving to AMI that had white powder in it was a hoax or not. There's really no evidence to suggest whatsoever that it was the delivery vehicle for the anthrax infection in the AMI building. In fact, the FBI doesn't even mention this anecdote about Robert Stevens opening the letter. And if we're looking at this apparent fifth letter that killed Robert Stevens or allegedly killed Robert Stevens in the Florida AMI building, we have to acknowledge that it does not fit the pattern of the other four letters. But what does it fit? What does it resemble? Well, since the other letters are actually pretending to be Islamic terrorists and have a very specific theme, we might actually lump this letter in, as described by witnesses, in the category of being more similar to the hoax letters sent from St. Petersburg, which I will go into, which were meant to more resemble a kook or a stalker type person writing into these newspapers rather than someone pretending to be an Islamic terrorist. But just going further with what I'm saying is the reason we have to separate some of these things out beyond these four known anthrax letters is because the five people who died in the anthrax attacks, two postal workers, one photojournalist for AMI named Robert Stevens, an old lady in Connecticut named Audelie Lundgren, and Kathy Newgren, in New York, a hospital worker. These five people were all essentially, according to the FBI and CDC, collateral damage victims that were not the intended specific targets of the anthrax attacks. So in essence, what I'm saying is the five people who died from anthrax infection, allegedly from these attacks, really had no direct connections to the targets of where these letters were sent. The FBI's explanation is that mail sorters and cross contamination in various postal facilities is how these other people got infected. Now, I sound a little skeptical probably as I'm saying that because I think that that theory is way too convenient. And I think we have to take into account the possibility that there were other anthrax letters in the mail, possibly being sent by the same perpetrators. Other hoax anthrax letters sent through the mail, also being sent by the same perpetrators, that the FBI never actually found, and that some of the other anthrax could have possibly even been hand-delivered in envelopes or letters that was not actually sent through metered mail systems. Now, this may sound a little convoluted and confusing. Now, I'm just going to rewind a little bit, actually, and give people listening to this an overview And just a little refresher course on what the 2001 anthrax attacks actually were and why they're so important and why Media Roots Radio has focused on this so heavily over the years, why it's just something that i focused on so much. I also actually forgot to finish my intro to this whole podcast, of course. I'll just really quickly say that Abby and I spent about a half a year, we tried to make it like almost like an audio documentary, you know, a documentary without video about the 2001 anthrax attacks like a true crime style chronological blow-by-blow account of how the anthrax attacks unfolded it was originally meant as a one of two part podcast now we still haven't gotten around to part two we we do plan to we really actually do plan to it's just something that is really big at this point abby and i did this really in-depth blow-by-blow, true-crime-style podcast about the 2001 anthrax attacks. We went through the entire timeline, very specifically, starting with Robert Stevens' death, the first victim of the anthrax attacks on the 5th of October. And I recommend, if you're not familiar with the 2001 anthrax attacks, and this is one of the first times you're hearing about it, or you maybe only vaguely heard about it before, I recommend you go back and put this on pause before you listen to any more. And go back and listen to the Media Roots radio podcast called Schrodinger's Super Patriot. What Schrodinger's Super Patriot is, is basically the entire timeline of the attacks from the beginning to end, ending basically with the last death in the anthrax attack, starting with the sort of preamble to them, which oddly, before there was any news about the first anthrax attack and victim which happened on October 5th, 2001, there was a lot of fear and hysteria building in the country about a possible biological attack. People were starting to get hysterical before that. And there's also strange connections about the hijackers having odd connections to anthrax-related things like crop dusters. But essentially, what the anthrax attacks was was what I would describe as basically the second terrorist attack following 9-11. 9-11 was the sort of the right hook taking you by surprise sucker punch. You're not quite on balance. You're thrown off, taken off guard. You're stunned. And then all of a sudden you just get pummeled by an uppercut just straight under your chin. Your teeth go flying out. Anthrax was the knockout punch following 9-11. 9-11 alone would not have created the amount of fear and hysteria necessary, in my opinion, to make Americans believe and acquiesce to this idea that terrorism was going to be a new way of life in the United States. It was the anthrax attacks that followed less than a month after 9-11 created enough hysteria to lock in this concept somehow that terrorism was now our way of life, that that was going to be our new way of life. 9-11 was a local event. Even though way more people died in 9-11 than anthrax, it was still rather localized. It didn't happen over the course of months. It was a one-off. It was a spectacular attack, but it was still a one-off. Anthrax started and went scaring people for months and months. It's not like everybody who died from the anthrax attacks died all in one day. They died over the course of several months. And it just kept amping up the fear levels when different random people would die from these attacks. Robert Stevens, the American Media Inc. employee, he comes down with inhalation anthrax poisoning on, I believe, on October 3rd, 2001. And it gets into the news fairly quickly that there's a guy that just got anthrax. Now, the strange thing is the media were the ones to jump to the conclusion that it was terrorism before the Bush administration. Of all the times where the Bush administration took advantage of hysteria and jumped in to, you know, insert al-Qaeda or whatever they could to sort of amp up the hysteria, This in this one instance, for some reason, at first, they didn't. They sent out Tommy Thompson of the Health and Human Services to basically say that Stevens might have drinking water from an infected stream, and that's how he got anthrax. Now, mind you, this is during a climate when people were afraid of a terrorist attack that would follow 9-11, and then all of a sudden, here you have the first anthrax infection in 25 years, and the U.S. government trots out Tommy Thompson to say, yeah, it doesn't seem like terrorism to us. seems like he you know, got sick uh, drinking out of a stream. And for about a week, strangely, the CDC is the only one investigating this. But then, fairly quickly, the FBI gets involved and it officially becomes terrorism. The Bush administration now starts calling it terrorism. But that odd sort of reversal is is still confusing to me. Why this one opportunity, they just failed to jump on it right away. I mean, here's a golden opportunity. Here's a guy getting infected with anthrax. You would think someone from the Bush administration would say, yeah, this could be potentially terrorism. They didn't say anything. In fact, they said the opposite. They downplayed it. But not to get too sidetracked, after the first anthrax murder, it was immediately discovered that various anthrax letters started to arrive, one at the New York Post, one at NBC headquarters, addressed specifically to Tom Brokaw, both seemingly written by the same person. The letters looked like the same style of handwriting. They both had real anthrax spores in them. Although the Tom Brokaw letter specifically had a higher grade of anthrax in it than the New York Post letter, which had a much lower grade of anthrax in it, which is interesting. And I'm just going to take you through the timeline really quickly, even though this is in our Schrodinger Super Patriot Anthrax episode. It's really important that you pay extra attention during this part so that you can understand why this new revelation that we're bringing to you today on the podcast completely throws a wrench in the official anthrax investigation. As far as i'm concerned so after robert stevens dies on october 5th and the fbi is still not interested in looking at this as an anthrax investigation or as a terrorist attack it takes them four days to get involved in the investigation after stevens dies on october 9th the fbi finally gets involved and this is starting to be referred to as terrorism now, three days later, on October twelfth, two thousand one, a letter addressed to Tom Brokaw was delivered to NBC News, and apparently it was opened by the staffer on that day. And the letter read nine eleven o one. This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. This letter was postmarked, according to the FBI, September eighteenth and it arrived on October 12th. It's not clear why it took so long to arrive. But apparently this is when it arrived, and the letter was actually filled with real weaponized anthrax spores. Another letter was also postmarked September 18th that was sent to the New York Post, but this letter for some reason wouldn't arrive until the 19th of October, even though they're located relatively in the same area. On October 19, 2001, a letter addressed to the New York Post arrives containing weaponized anthrax spores, but seemingly mixed in with some kind of lower grade inert material or not as potent in terms of the weaponization of the spores, even though there was real anthrax in the letter. This letter reads, 9-11-01, this is next, take penicillin now, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great all in capital letters, all written almost as if to be some kind of carefully written line-by-line form of block letters to disguise one's handwriting. It's hard to tell exactly what the technique was, but just on first glance, it does appear that it's someone deliberately writing in block letters sort of line-by-line. They're not writing continuous strokes with their hand in order to sort of just carefully disguise their own handwriting. The envelope and the letters inside have the same style of handwriting. Actually, four days before that, a batch of letters that was sent out later than those two letters I just told you about arrives on October 15th in Washington, D.C., and a staffer working for Tom Daschle, the Senate majority leader, opens this letter and it basically lets off a plume of sort of aerosolized powder. The letter says, you cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America, death to Israel. Allah is great. Of course, Dashel and his staff were immediately given Cipro treatments and taken to the hospital to test for anthrax infection. Several of them tested positive, but none of them ended up incurring any serious sickness or injury because they got treated fast enough. Now, the early October mailings, which was the second batch of real anthrax letters, Another letter was sent in that batch that for some reason got lost in the mail and didn't arrive until November 16, 2001. This letter was addressed to Patrick Leahy, Senator, and was found in the impounded mail, meaning that they sort of froze the mail. So that's probably why it was held for so long. But all you really need to know, the details from this, you don't need to know the individual dates in which these letters necessarily arrived except for the earliest one, the Brokaw letter, which arrived on the 12th. Now, keep in mind that there was nothing about any sort of anthrax attack happening, ongoing attack. Nobody knew about or connected together this original Robert Stevens death with these letters until really the letter came in. Even though the FBI started looking at Stevens death that happened on the 5th of October as terrorism on on the 9th of October, it wasn't until The letter that was addressed to tom brokaw that had real weaponized anthrax in it caught the fbi's attention as a potential related terrorist event and you know how they actually determined exactly that this attack was connected to florida that these four letters that had weaponized anthrax in them how they were connected to the attack in florida they determined that because the strain used in the letters the anthrax strain was the aim strain which was a basically a U.S.-made, military-made product. It was discovered in the wild, but then the spores were duplicated in labs as a weaponized form of anthrax or was used for weaponized forms of anthrax because anthrax has to go through a procedure to become weaponized, which is another thing we're going to talk about on this podcast. I'm getting sidetracked again. Basically, you just need to know that four anthrax letters were sent with real anthrax. The first one arrived the NBC on October 12th, that one, along with the New York Post letter, were postmarked September 18th. If the motive, according to the FBI, was inspiration from 9-11, that means that the killer, essentially, of the anthrax attacks only had seven days to hatch the plan from the point of 9-11 to pulling it off by sending out the murder weapon on the 18th. Now, we don't have a clear timeline on when the Robert Stevens letter arrived. Unfortunately, we don't really know for sure. Now, I tried to sort of calculate this based on my own research, and I'll just tell you what I found. Now, it's not 100% clear when American Media Inc. received what witnesses describe as an anthrax-laced letter. Here's the weird part. Eyewitness accounts report this letter as arriving not just a few days before Robert Stevens became ill on October 2nd, Some witnesses describe this letter arriving in their offices three weeks before October 7th, which would put the arrival date of this letter actually earlier than the Brokaw letter, obviously, and other letters, but it would mean that it was probably postmarked before the 18th. If it arrived three weeks before October 7th, you get somewhere in the window of September 14th through the 16th in terms of the arrival date. So when was this letter postmarked? If a letter arrived at Florida American Media Incorporated around September 14th to the 16th, then when was it postmarked? That letter, if it was sent after 9-11, if this attack was inspired by 9-11, as the FBI says, was sent even quicker than the other letters. Now keep in mind, we do not have a copy of this letter. We only have witness accounts of what this letter looked like. Now from an official CDC report, published. This is how they say they know Robert Stevens dies from inhalation anthrax from mail. This is how they determine that he dies this way. This is their forensic evidence trail, at least for the, basically the way that he was killed. Not that they have any evidence that the letter is around anymore, or that they have any proof of what letter it came from or anything like that. But this is what they say. They say, quote, evidence that mail was the transmission vehicle was provided through two nasal swab cultures yielding B. anthrax from workplace mail handlers and results of environmental specimen cultures, revealing contamination in the workplace mail van and mail room. Now, someone in the mail room, according to the same document, recalled opening an envelope that released powder around September 25th. But after this, she discarded the letter. And the letter had most likely arrived during the previous two weeks while she was on vacation. Now, again, I'm not saying that the killer sent you know this out as quick as like 9-12 or nine thirteen. Technically speaking, the timing of Stephen's death isn't odd. If we go by the story that he heard office rumors about this weird letter and decided to take it out of her trash, which is apparently what people said that he did, after the 25th of September, But if she received it sometime in the two-week time frame before, that's 9-11 to 9-24. This still makes a plausible arrival date of an anthrax letter to AMI around September 14th to the 16th. But I would say it takes at least one to three days for a letter to travel. So the letter was sent postmarked September 11th to the 15th. I would judge. And by that, basically what I'm saying is the latest estimate That I'm judging based on all the available data that I've looked at, of when the Robert Stevens letter was postmarked, and I'm making an educated guess, is still three days earlier than the earliest known postmarked letter. So let me just say that again. The latest estimate I can make, which is that the letter was postmarked on September 15th, is still three days earlier than the earliest known postmarked letter on the 18th. But here's the date that's important to remember. No one in the country really knew anything or had any inkling of an anthrax attack or anthrax letters happening until October 5th, when Stevens died. And by then, it wasn't even widely publicized that he had opened some kind of letter with powder in it. This idea that anthrax letters were being sent to the mail targeting people didn't become a thing until, really, the Brokaw letter, which hit on the 12th. So here comes, in my opinion, one of the biggest finds that I've come across in the 2001 anthrax attacks in several years. Now, the concept of hoax letters, it's not really something that I spent a lot of time looking at when I've been looking at this case. And part of that is because when I say hoax letters, I mean seemingly copycat attacks of the anthrax attacks, people who had found out about them through the media or whatever and just started sending random letters throughout the mail with, you know, just inert white powder, laundry detergent, a lot of people, sugar, flour, saying it was anthrax or making it seem terroristic in nature. And these types of letters range somewhere in the hundreds, maybe even in the thousands. So for me personally, as a researcher trying to pick one thing out of these, it was difficult to do. But actually, one thing involving hoax letters always did stand out to me a little bit. And I'll just say really quickly, one of them in particular always stood out to me because the timing didn't make sense to me. And not only did the timing not make sense, but the person that the letter was targeted to has been someone that I think is suspicious and that I've talked about before on other podcasts as being someone that I think we need to consider as being a potential player in this, whatever this larger anthrax thing was. Now, who was this? This was New York Times reporter Judith Miller. On October 12th, the same day that real anthrax arrived at 30 Rock in New York City in the form of a letter addressed to Tom Brokaw, across town that same day, New York Times reporter Judith Miller opens a letter addressed to her personally at her office at the New York Times, and that letter contains white powder, which she believed to be anthrax. But after FBI testing, it was proven to be inert and not anthrax. And here's the strangest thing. And I did put this in the Schrodinger Super Patriot podcast. Whoever mailed this hoax letter to Judith Miller seemed to be already aware that real anthrax letters were already being sent in the mail, one of them to Tom Brokaw of NBC News. Now, Let's just say at the time I knew this, that's all I just said to you now is all I knew about this hoax letter. That somehow, if this was a different person than the real anthrax murderer who sent a hoax letter to Judith Miller, it was awfully coincidental that both of these letters arrived on the same day. That means that the person had a bizarre amount of parallel thinking with the real murderer, right? If they would also send anthrax to a different journalist at the New York Times, that the real anthrax murderer sends real anthrax to a journalist at NBC? I mean, what are the chances that those aren't related? But also Judith Miller was a participant in Operation Dark Winter. She basically had this weird, cozy relationship with Scooter Libby and other people in the Bush administration and in relation to bioweapons and bioterrorism reporting. That was her beat. So who was this person that sent fake anthrax to Judith Miller? Who was that? Because keep in mind, by the 12th, That would have meant that whoever sent fake anthrax to Judith Miller, if they were, say, quote unquote, inspired by the Robert Stevens death, they would have only had seven days. Well, actually less than that, because it takes more days for that for the letter to go in the mail. So they might have only had around four days to scurry together some kind of hoax anthrax scare that actually was similar to the real anthrax letters. They would have sort of had to know, randomly come up with the same concept putting anthrax in a letter and addressing it to a reporter in New York. That's strange in and of itself, because like I said, no one knew about the first anthrax murder in the public until October 5th. But the question, I guess, is if we know that the letters sent to New York Post and Tom Brokaw were postmarked September 18th, and that gives us some indication that, well, okay, well, maybe these letters were postmarked after the first anthrax murder, in the news because that would make sense. Let's say that would make sense if the Judith Miller letter was postmarked on October 6th. What if some crazy person just happened to come up with this idea of sending a hoax anthrax letter that resembled the real anthrax letters and they arrived on the same day coincidentally and they maybe only had a day to do it. It's possible you know if this if this letter was postmarked October 6th that's possible right but it turns out the Judith Miller hoax letter was actually postmarked. October 5th, sent from St. Petersburg the same day that Robert Stevens dies at JFK Memorial Hospital in Florida. But again, this isn't really super, super convincing timing, right? I mean, it's still possible that whoever sent the St. Petersburg hoax letter to Judith Miller was waiting for something to get into the news about a previous aspect of the crime and was copycatting it by immediately sending a hoax letter piggybacking off of the death of Robert Stevens I suppose that's still technically possible but here's where things get way way stranger and that when I lay out all this evidence it essentially becomes impossible to believe that the St. Petersburg hoax letters are not related to the real letters meaning that it's not just a copycat that it appears that it was actually done in coordination with who was sending the real anthrax letters. And this evidence, I think, that I will show you will make that pretty irrefutable. So I'll just start by saying that there were actually two batches of real anthrax letters sent through the mail about two and a half weeks apart. The first batch, a real letter was sent to Tom Brokaw and the New York Post. when I say real letter, I mean a letter containing real anthrax was sent to them postmarked September 18th. The second batch of letters that contained real anthrax were sent to Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy and were postmarked on October 9th, 2001. Now keep in mind, anthrax was really already in the news as a possible new bioterrorist attack based on Robert Stevens' death on October 5th. So like I said, the timing is suspicious and very soon that Judith Miller would get a hoax anthrax letter that was postmarked on the same day that Robert Stevens died from St. Petersburg, Florida. But that's not super, super convincing that this was done in coordination with the real letter sender. You're probably still thinking, well, it could still be a copycat. And yeah, Judas Miller is suspicious, but that doesn't mean that, you know, just because she got one of these hoax letters, that doesn't mean that the hoax letters are connected to the attacks. But here's where the strong evidence is, I think. So remember, I was saying that two batches of real anthrax letters were sent out the first batch was sent to the New York Post and Tom Brokaw on September 18th. Well, those letters that were postmarked September 18th took at least a few days to arrive to their destinations in New York, even though they were sent from New Jersey. But here's where things get much weirder. The same sender of that Judith Miller hoax anthrax letter from St. Petersburg also sent out two batches of hoax anthrax letters. Four total letters they sent out. And guess where the first batch of hoax anthrax letters was sent out? Before anyone had heard any news about any anthrax going through the mail, this hoax letter sender from St. Petersburg, Florida, sent two hoax letters out, postmarked September 20th to Tom Brokaw and the New York Post. What are the chances of that? That before anyone knows about anything in the news of any anthrax letters going to any media organizations, a hoaxer from 700 miles away from New Jersey, completely unrelated person, knows to send, has parallel thinking to send hoax letters to the same targets only two days later with nothing in the news to indicate this is happening. How is this possible? Well, I would say that it's not possible. It's either one of the craziest coincidences ever, and one of the most bizarre cases of parallel thinking and coincidental thinking ever, or it's not, and it's coordinated effort. Just the timing alone and the choice of targets alone suggest that it might be. But let me get into some of the more specific details of how this timeline actually happened. Now, there's a researcher named Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, who I've discussed on Whitney Webb's podcast and I don't really know much about her, to be honest. She seems a little bit like a wild card. And she did get in trouble and sort of get a lot of backlash for going after Stephen Hatfill. And this is a theme that keeps coming up again and again in this research that I've been doing recently, is that these St. Petersburg hoax letters seem to peripherally be related to people's targeting of Stephen Hatfill. But Barbara Hatch Rosenberg actually laid out what I think is one of the most important timelines ever to be laid out in the 2001 anthrax attacks. And the reason why is because Barbara Hatch Rosenberg actually includes these St. Petersburg hoax letters in the actual crimes timeline because she believes, like a lot of actual researchers believed early on in this case, is that there's no way that these St. Petersburg letters weren't related to the real anthrax letters, merely just because of the timing. The FBI says that Bruce Ivins somehow managed to sneak away in the middle of the night twice and make a seven and a half hour round trip from Frederick, Maryland to New Jersey to send these letters. But I don't understand. Does the FBI also think that Bruce Ivins took a 29 hour round trip from Frederick, Maryland to St. Petersburg, Florida twice in the middle of the night to do this? No. So who did this? And what happened? Well, this is one of the strangest, I think, aspects of this whole thing, is that apparently on September 25th, 2001, NBC receives and opens a hoax St. Petersburg anthrax letter. And this is from Robert Graysmith's anthrax book, The Hunt for the Anthrax Killer. He says, on Tuesday, September 25th, the phone rang at the New York FBI field office. The phone lines had been constantly busy. Most of the agents were out on cases. NBC TV Security was on the line about a letter to Tom Brokaw, postmarked September 20th from St. Petersburg, Florida. The letter contained powder resembling talcum and a threatening note which read, The unthinkable. See what happens next. Like the Trenton letter O'Connor had opened, this one carried no return address. And what he's referring to is the person who had opened this was an NBC News employee named Aaron O'Connor. But strangely, And this is where things get really odd. She had found this letter so alarming that she got her bosses to call the FBI. Now, they didn't think it was important enough to respond right away. In fact, they didn't come out until two days after this. But here's where things get weird. Erin O'Connor actually started to get sick after she opened this letter. Now, right before O'Connor started to get sick, the FBI came a couple days later and according to Robert Graysmith, they say that O'Connor had no time for an interview. So the agents stuck the St. Petersburg letter in an evidence vault until she did. As a result, they did not test the powder until at least two weeks later, nor did they immediately notify City Hall. Their delay in identifying the white powder later confirmed fears that the FBI wouldn't recognize bioterrorism when they saw it. What kind of fear? Who was afraid of that? That's a completely fake fear. This is That sounds like propaganda that Robert Graysmith is slurping down. Of course the FBI would recognize that. Are you fucking idiotic? The fuck? Total whitewash, Graysmith. Now this is just a really hard to swallow story. It makes very little sense and I think it raises a lot of questions. I'll tell you what Graysmith says in his book as he basically talks about, and most other people who have covered this also say pretty much the same thing that Aaron O'Connor started to get sick after she opened this hoax letter and notified the FBI while in the hospital they were able to do a cutaneous anthrax infection swab somehow on her and she tested positive for anthrax she was infected with anthrax so Robert Gray Smith says Since the St. Petersburg letter was a hoax, the question was how and where had O'Connor gotten infected with anthrax? Cutaneous anthrax is contracted when spores breach the skin through minor cuts and abrasions. On Friday, October 12th, O'Connor was at home recovering when the FBI interviewed her by phone. And it seems like the first time the FBI actually interviewed her, which is absolutely ridiculous considering she called them on the 25th. She suddenly remembered a second envelope addressed to Brokaw. It had been received within a week of the St. Petersburg letter and filed in an inter-office folder reserved for questionable mail. At the time, she hadn't thought much of it, but now recalled that a, quote, dark sand-like powder had spilled out. Following her directions, an NBC security guard took the elevator down to her third office. He quickly found the folder in her drawer. Inside was the missing letter. He decided to open it for further examination in a second-floor mailroom, then returned to the 16th-floor security office. It was still very early Friday morning when NYPD officers with the Brokaw letter in a plastic bag raced up to the City Health Department lab. They took it to our lab, said the City Deputy Health Commissioner, Dr. Isaac Wiesfews, and the handling of it caused a contamination event at our lab later that day. The police didn't know how to handle samples. Unlike their counterparts at the CDC, the technicians had never been offered anthrax vaccines. The two men took Cipro, then conducted nose swab tests on themselves. After both technicians tested positive, they were too traumatized to continue work. The lab was sealed until cleanup could be accomplished. I mean, this is just absolutely ridiculous. What we're seeing happen here is that the Brokaw hoax letter from St. Petersburg was the one that prompted the call to the FBI sometime around late September approximately September 25th the person who got it O'Connor doesn't even remember getting the quote real anthrax letter at first so therefore the hoax letter sent to Tom Brokaw was what really kicked off the FBI first looking into this series of letters but this is, this is really strange so the hoax letter is what she thought made her sick, but the real anthrax letter was just something that had some brown, sandy substance in it that she does not even think was as crazy, that didn't even stick in her mind as much. But what was it about the Tom Brokaw hoax letter like, and how it was written that, that stuck in her mind so much? It's actually not really clear. We've actually never seen it. We've never seen a photograph of it. We've never seen a photograph of the envelope. We've never seen a photograph of the letter. But it has come out in a Don Foster Vanity Fair article what the actual letter said. It said, the unthinkable, see what happens next. And what happened next was people started dying from real anthrax. So again, this implies coordination with the killer or killers, or this is the same group of killer or killers. It also had reversed ends in the word unthinkable that was meant to look like Russian characters. And also the Sending location of St. Petersburg, was that meant to be an allusion to Russia's biological weapons programs, apparently, that are in St. Petersburg, Russia? I mean, the fact that this hoax letter wasn't pretending to be an Islamic terrorist, but actually seemed to be pretending to be Russian is strange and differs, again, from the pattern. But again, the timing, the coordination, the target implies that it was related and involved coordination. Now, according to another Anthrax article, and I actually don't know where this comes from, but, and I've seen this said around several places. So apparently there were actual thematic similarities between the hoax letter that was sent to Brokaw and the real letter that was sent to Brokaw, because I have this quote here that says, both letters contain threats to Israel. Death to Israel, does it say? Like the one, the real anthrax letter? What kind of threat to Israel did it say? How come that part's never been actually quoted? Just the sort of the unthinkable, see what happens next part is quoted. What did it say about Israel in this letter? What did the New York Post letter say? We've seen the real anthrax letter that was sent to the New York Post. We've seen the real envelope. What did the one to the New York Post say that was sent from St. Petersburg? Did it also have a threat to Israel in it? Did it also have talcum powder in it? So remember that I said that there were two batches of real anthrax letters said, two pairs sent out at different times. The first pair of letters were postmarked on September 18th and sent to Brokaw and the New York Post. Well, in between those different pairs of letters, because the next pair went out on October 9th, 2001, in between those sendings, were the two different pairs of St. Petersburg letters. I already told you about the first pair that was sent to the same targets as the real letters two days after the real letters were sent. Those were postmarked September 20th. We've never seen either of those letters. We've never seen either of those envelopes sent from St. Petersburg. We only have that small quote about what was in the Tom Brokaw one. But without just harping on this idea infinitely that it's so weird that Erin O'Connor thought she got sick from the hoax letter and ended up testing negative for anthrax. And the FBI was so lackadaisical with that, but yet she tested positive for anthrax, and then a security guard randomly went through their drawers and found the real letter. I mean, that whole story is just hard to swallow overall. It's very strange. But I think it keeps getting stranger because, like I said, if this wasn't done in coordination... It's extremely prescient, and the parallel thinking is insane. The same day that Robert Stevens dies from inhalation anthrax, somebody else sends two more letters from St. Petersburg, Florida, two more hoax letters, including the one to Judith Miller. This was postmarked on October 5th. And another one to another reporter in Florida who writes for the St. Petersburg Times. And I'm going to talk about that letter now, and this was sort of the nexus point for how this recent research project of mine started about the Amerithrax investigations, this sort of return to the case and looking at it with new eyes. This is where Gumby for Christ came in that found this article from the St. Petersburg Times, which revealed all this to me in the first place. And this article isn't written by the St. Petersburg Times by the person who received one of these hoax anthrax letters sent from St. Petersburg. It's actually just written by some staff writers. The person who received the letter at the St. Petersburg Times was named Howard Troxler. But they revealed some interesting things in this article. And this is the article that Gumby found. And this article was published October thirteenth, two 2001, in the St. Petersburg Times, by authors David Bollingred, Mike Brassfield, and Wes Allison. The article creepily has a picture of Rudy Giuliani standing next to Bernard Carrick, who, if you listen to this podcast, you know how creepy I think they are. The article's title is called "Broca's Aid Test Positive, Suspicious Letters to NBC, New York Times, Sent from St. Petersburg, authorities say. A broadening national bioterrorism investigation turned towards St. Petersburg late Friday after NBC officials disclosed that a New York employee has contracted anthrax. A woman who opens the mail for news anchor Tom Brokaw was diagnosed with a skin form of anthrax several days after she opened a letter that contained white powder and was postmarked from St. Petersburg. The New York Times on Friday received a letter with white powder and the St. Petersburg Times received one earlier in the week. All three letters were postmarked in St. Petersburg. Federal law enforcement officials said late Friday that all three letters postmarked St. Petersburg tested negatively for anthrax. Still, the case of the NBC worker hit a nerve and touched off a new investigation in Florida. Late Friday, postal officials converged at the main post office in St. Petersburg, saying they were working with the FBI and others in the early stages of an investigation. Officials quickly said there was no known link to either the September 11th terrorist attacks or the more serious inhaled form of anthrax that killed a supermarket tabloid editor in Florida last week. Talking about Robert Stevens, it's kind of a denigrating way to talk about him. The 38 year old NBC employee was being treated with antibiotics, an aid to Tom Brokaw. But now it's saying the letter sent from St. Petersburg, and I don't know if this is clear to you if you're a listener. St. Petersburg is in Florida. It's on the west coast of Florida, not too far away from Sarasota. St. Petersburg, Florida, someone went to St. Petersburg, Florida, or was in St. Petersburg, Florida, and before anything about anthrax attacks or anthrax mailings were in the news, sent two fake anthrax letters in the mail one to Tom Brokaw, who also received a real anthrax letter. One to the New York Post, which also received a real anthrax letter. And for some reason, this St. Petersburg Times article only says three total letters. But in fact, there were four total St. Petersburg hoax letters. The first two being sent on September 20th to Tom Brokaw in the New York Post. Then one to Judith Miller, who only received this fake anthrax letter. And one to an employee of St. Petersburg Times, a man named Howard Troxler, a reporter for the St. Petersburg Times who had done a lot of writing for them for a very long time. Now, why do I also think that it's possible that the real anthrax letters are connected to these St. Petersburg hoax letters other than the coincidental timing and the exact same targets with the first pair of real versus hoax letters? It's because in this St. Petersburg Times article, they actually show a picture of what the Howard Troxler hoax envelope looks like. Now, if you notice from the thumbnail image or the graphic for this podcast, I am sort of showing you side by side or more like above and below on top the real anthrax letter. Sent to Editor New York Post, 1211 Avenue of the Americas, New York, New York, 10036 something. I can't read the last letter. This letter was postmarked September 18th, 2001. And underneath it, I have a letter addressed to Howard Troxler, Mr. Howard Troxler, St. Petersburg Times, 490 First Avenue, St. Petersburg, Florida, 33701. This letter was postmarked October 5th, 2001. Now, what do you immediately notice when looking at these letters side by side like this? Well, I can't say because I'm not a handwriting expert. I have no expertise in this area whatsoever if it looks like it's written by the same person. But I can say that it looks like it's written by somebody who's using the same techniques to try and disguise their own handwriting, writing everything in capitalized letters. By that I mean carefully writing line by line seemingly every letter, as to try to disguise the handwriting. Using blue ink that looks like it may have even been written with some kind of felt tip pen. Not sure. That's something I have to actually verify, what kind of ink and pen was used on the anthrax letters. Looks to me like it could be kind of a, a ballpoint blue ink pen that sort of, you know, has runny ink. Or maybe they use different pens. but. One thing that immediately strikes me between these two letters is the handwriting could perhaps even be done by the same person, even though it looks like in both instances they are being disguised. This is just something that Lori and I were discussing when it comes to looking at these envelopes compared to each other, is that there are some immediate similarities that kind of stick out, I think. The E's look kind of similar. Whoever writes these tends to put the middle of the middle bar of their e slightly high. The p looks a little bit similar. The s's actually, some of the s's look like fives. And I actually did a comparison graphic back to back that you can download as part of the Anthrax cache of files that we released for free download accompanying this podcast comparing the Troxler St. Petersburg letter versus the Brokaw letter. And I think this one's even more convincing. This one's handwriting looks even more similar to the one that I use on the thumbnail graphic. So if you want to see this one, you can find it on my Twitter feed, but you can also download it as part of the Anthrax cache. It's in the folder called letters, photos, and files, hoax and real. And the photo in question is October 7th, Troxler St. Petersburg letter versus October 9th Brokaw letter. Um, The handwriting looks very, very, very similar. And the pen style actually looks even more similar too. One other thing that my wife Lori pointed out while I was bouncing some of this evidence off of her was that it looks like whoever wrote all of these letters, I'm saying the St. Petersburg letters, assuming that all the St. Petersburg envelopes look the same as this Howard Troxler envelope that we can see, and the New Jersey letters, taking all these letters together, it looks like whoever wrote all of these used some kind of stencil rectangular cutout to cover the rest of the envelope so that they were only able to write the address, the two address, in a small rectangular area of the envelope. Maybe they did this to try to prevent forensic evidence from dropping onto the envelope like DNA or fibers or hair. But if you look at the Senator Daschle real anthrax envelope and compare it to the Mr. Howard Troxler fake anthrax envelope, it looks like it's almost within the exact same little rectangular area that they tried to write the address. And in some cases, it looks like they're sort of struggling to fit the address as they finish writing it. But specifically on the Howard Troxler letter, it looks like that rectangular cutout of this theory is right, actually cut off the first line of the M in Mr. Howard Troxler. And then whoever wrote this, after they took off this rectangular stencil, perhaps they had to go back and write a new line for the first line in the M because it gets cut off in the stencil. Because as you can see, it's actually further to the left than when Senator Daschle starts, if we're assuming that the stencil and the proportions are about the same, if we're going by the size of the stamp, the metering stamp itself, because from what I've read, these hoax envelopes were different sizes than the real anthrax New Jersey letters. Like the envelope size was a different style of envelope. So I think we can really only go by the metered stamp stamp and that size is standard. So, if we match those two together, I think we get a pretty accurate comparison of the size of the handwriting compared to the New Jersey letters. Now, how is this possible that if the killer in the 2001 anthrax attacks is lone nut scientist Bruce Ivins, who sent these letters out sometime around the 18th of September from a New Jersey mailbox, how is it possible that he could have snuck down to Florida without anybody noticing within a 48 hour period? and sent these two other letters. And even though the St. Petersburg letters never came up in any of the official FBI investigations or files, we do have evidence that the FBI was actually looking at the St. Petersburg letters and had believed internally in their investigation early on that the St. Petersburg letters meant that there were multiple killers, multiple people involved in the crime coordinating together. And according to Marilyn Thompson's book and her own statements as late as 2008, and she says this in her own book, that the FBI actually returned to the Florida crime scene later in 2002, the AMI building, based on a hunch on the St. Petersburg letters and just the Florida location of the first anthrax death itself, a hunch that led them in the direction of Stephen Hatfield. And if you don't just want to take my word for it, here's what Marilyn Thompson actually says in her book. Intrigued by the Florida connections to the anthrax death of Bob Stevens and to two hoax letters mailed from St. Petersburg in October 2001, FBI agents during the summer of 2002 sifted several times through Hatfield's Florida shed. So in case that isn't completely clear, this is Marilyn Thompson confirming what I've just said, that the FBI was actually looking at the St. Petersburg letters as part of the overall larger Amerithrax case. And it actually led them in the direction of Stephen Hatfield. So even though they never talk about this officially or on the record, it's clear that at some point the St. Petersburg letters were part of their case. The only time a law enforcement agency did go on record publicly about the St. Petersburg letters being part of the larger Amerithrax case was the postal inspector... The St. Petersburg Police Department. And the St. Petersburg Police Department told the St. Petersburg Times, even though they couldn't really comment on it, even though they were the target of this, that they were working with the FBI and the U.S. Postal Service and Manhattan Homicide Squad of the New York Police Department. As far as we know, that's as close as the FBI got to being on the public record as far as them investigating these St. Petersburg letters. But what was in this Howard Troxler envelope, what did it actually say? Well, according to Howard Troxler, it says that the hoax letter sent to St. Petersburg Times actually said this inside. Howard Troxler dot 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 dot. First case of disease now blow away this dust. So you can see how the real thing flies. Oklahoma Rider truck, Skyway Bridge, 18 wheels, so, what's strange is it seems like he's referring to the Skyway Bridge collapse in Tampa, Florida, that happened on May 9th, 1980, where a giant ship, I guess, got lost in some fog and collided with a part of the bridge, essentially just tearing through it. And 35 people died. Most of them were on a greyhound that just plummeted right into the water. Um, and probably a bunch of people just drowned. Horrible accident. But this guy seems to be referring to a local incident in his threatening letter to Howard Troxler. No demand, no reference also to 9-11. But he references another attack, the Oklahoma City bombing. He says, Oklahoma rider truck. Very strange. So it seems to be that this one is not trying to imitate an Islamic terrorist, but might actually be trying to imitate a domestic terrorist local kook referencing a local event. And the way that they spell flies, F-L-Y-S, is sort of almost Zodiac-like, the sort of arbitrary, blatant misspelling of words on purpose. And then referencing this obscure to outsiders, but known in Florida, local bridge accident slash collapse, almost sort of feels Mothman-like, like the Mothman prophecies. Now, are there any other stories? Could it just be misreporting by the St. Petersburg Times? I mean, after all, you know, you have to get in when you get into the granularity of these dates and these timelines. Maybe one story or another story is getting these wrong or was misreported in the early months and days of the, the attacks, either 9 11 or anthrax. Well, that's a fair argument to make. I think that's a good devil's advocate point to challenge me on. Well, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg's timeline and History Commons. Dot .org their timelines have links to plenty of old archive stories that prove this to be the case it's not just the St Petersburg Times there's dozens of stories that establish this hoax letter timeline and you could find some of this in our anthrax cache database that we are releasing along with this podcast and you could also find some of this on the UCLA's bioterrorism Amerithrax archives which they have a chronological Archive too, which is really useful, but I'm just gonna read to you some quotes from a specific article that has some confirmatory evidence about the handwriting in it. An ABC News article from January sixth, two thousand six, 2006, that was updated by ABC News. Like it was an early story from October thirteenth, two thousand one. It almost seems as if, according to the order of events, that Rudy Giuliani was already talking about the hoax anthrax letter that had arrived before Brokaw. So it's possible that there was already news about this hoax anthrax letter arriving before the real Brokaw letter. But I'll just say in this ABC News reposting of this article, it just says, unlike the September 20th letter, which sources said had a St. Petersburg postmark, the September 18th letter was postmarked in Trenton, New Jersey. So they're referring again to the three hoax letters. One of them sent to Miller, one of them sent to Howard Troxler in St. Petersburg, and another sent to Tom Broca. I don't think the fourth New York Post St. Petersburg letter had been in the news yet. So a lot of these early reports that reference the St. Petersburg letters reference to them as saying the three letters from St. Petersburg. And here's something fascinating. Rudy Giuliani without looking at the Howard Troxler letter that I'm using in the graphic that you've already looked at, hopefully, actually makes a comparison to the Tom Brokaw real anthrax letter and the hoax letters handwriting himself on October 13th. It says from this ABC News article that the envelopes was similar to the one received by the infected NBC employee. Talk about the New York Times one and was also postmarked from St. Petersburg, Florida, and contained no return address. Giuliani said the handwriting on both pieces of mail was similar, but offered no further details. Fascinating. So Giuliani himself agrees with me, except Giuliani is talking about a letter that I haven't seen, because, as I just said, you can't find this hoax Judith Miller letter and what it looks like, what the envelope looks like. Luckily, the St. Petersburg Times ran this story themselves and posted the letter before it got apparently confiscated. The fake hoax anthrax letter that was sent to Howard Troxler at the St. Petersburg Times, the envelope it was sent in, is the only thing that we can see and that's available to the public that I know of from these four total St. Petersburg hoax letters. The three other envelopes from these other St. Petersburg hoax letters are not available. There's no photographs of them floating around on the internet. And the letters inside, all of them, are not available, including the envelope inside the Howard Troxler hoax letter. We only know what it said inside, apparently. But there's also some writings out there that claims that in the Howard Troxler letter, again, it had some Russian characters, some reversed letters to make it appear Russian. Since we don't have a photograph of it, I don't really know. But what's unfortunate is we don't have photographs of these St. Petersburg hoax letters. We only have one of the envelopes that we can look at. But I guess on the flip side, I'm a little bit hopeful that they are still out there somewhere because journalist Don Foster, Vanity Fair, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, researcher, and various other people, including, as I just read to you, Rudy Giuliani, have set their own eyes on these hoax letters. And they believe Two, that there are handwriting similarities between the hoax letters sent from St. Petersburg and the real anthrax letters sent from New Jersey. But let me get more specific. Giuliani is actually comparing the handwriting from the hoax brokaw letter to the real brokaw letter. He's not even talking about the Troxler letter. We only have the Troxler envelope. And I think that's already enough compelling evidence to say that we need to be able to check out these other envelopes and letters and come to a conclusion ourselves. So why aren't those out there for us to see? If they're just hoaxes, why can't we see those? Why are those so buried? And why did the FBI not come directly on site, even though they have a Tampa, Florida field office to come respond to the Howard Troxler hoax letters? Why did the FBI also delay for two days looking at Aaron O'Connor's calls to them and NBC's management calls to them about the Brokaw hoax letter? But the last letter in the hoax letter timeline after howard troxler receives his on october 7th 2001 judith miller received hers three days later october twelfth, two 2001 and apparently this letter had threats in it against the sears tower specifically but that's really all we know and all judith miller was willing to publish in her own account Of opening this hoax letter. But as you'll see as I read this article of hers, one of the main differences between her opening this hoax letter and Howard Troxler opening his is that the FBI and law enforcement seemed to give a huge shit when it came to Miller's, but not to Troxler's hoax letter. Even though apparently at this time the FBI was operating on the theory that the hoax letters from St. Petersburg and the real New Jersey letters were all done by the same people working in coordination. But now I'm going to tell you about the last letter in this hoax letter timeline, the October 12th Judith Miller hoax letter and how she described it herself. What happened to Judith Miller was kind of, in a strange way, a performance. And this performance and her reporting in the New York Times about this hoax anthrax letter that was sent to her actually comes to define, in a lot of ways, the sort of visual image of a cloud, a cloud of powder, this toxic cloud of anthrax spores. And visually, in a weird way, it also sort of resembles 9-11, the cloud of dust. And you'll also find evidence by looking back in these early stories that the image of white powder, that the anthrax was so weaponized it was white powder, not just the cloudy way that it floated in the air, also comes from the hoax letters overall, as I read to you earlier from that ABC News article. I don't know if Judith Miller came up with this visual imagery on her own or not, but I think that in a large way, it actually sort of defined in the popular zeitgeist how Americans imagine this attack taking place. Not based on the reporting of someone opening a real letter, but Judith Miller opening a fake Anthrax letter that actually contained talcum powder. Judith Miller wrote about her experience on Sunday, October 14th, in the New York Times. Fear hits newsroom in a cloud of powder by Judith Miller. It looked like baby powder, a cloud of hospital white, sweet smelling rose powder from the letter, dusting my face, sweater, and hands. The heavy particles dropped to the floor, falling on my pants and shoes. An anthrax hoax, I thought. My mind had been somewhere else. Now she goes on to talk about Bill Patrick. She says, Bill had shown me how the fine powder and the small vial he kept on his desk dissolved like magic into the air when the vial was shaken and poured. Since 1998, I've been touring the laboratories and plants that had been part of the Soviet Union's vast germ empire. The research had terrified me at first. Not even the terrorism I had covered as a Times correspondent in the Middle East in the 1980s had so unnerved me. Had the Times planned for such an emergency, I would have been isolated from my colleagues and the potentially deadly letter. But like most organizations, we had not conducted drills for a biological or chemical attack. So a senior editor and friend put his arm around me and went with me to the medical department on another floor. When I returned, concerned colleagues and editors also rushed to my side. Someone brought me a cup of tea for me. They, too, are now taking Cipro. Within 20 minutes of the incident, almost a dozen law enforcement officials from almost as many agencies had arrived in the building, each with its own idea of what to do. While the newsroom floor was evacuated, photographs were made and tests conducted at my desk by police officers, many of them in tan head-to-toe bio suits with gas masks. I stayed with them to show them where the powder had fallen and where I went after I had opened the letter. I shall never forget the sight of these moon men moving through our normally bustling now empty newsroom, silent, save for the ringing of unanswered phones. They began questioning me almost immediately. Whom did I know in Florida? Had I been there recently? Did I usually open my own mail? Was there a reason for someone to want to send me such a letter? Could I describe the powder? Where and how had it fallen? I knew they were checking to verify the particle size. The Joint Terrorism Task Force officers dressed in civilian clothes were polite, professional, and clearly concerned. And this is odd too. She says, calm down, I thought. It's still probably a hoax. As I washed my hands and tried to dust off the powder that clung to my pants and shoes, I thought about what Bill Patrick, my friend bioweapons mentor, had told me. Anthrax was hard to weaponize. To produce spores small enough to infect the lungs took great skill. She doesn't specifically say the FBI was here taking swab samples, but she does say that over a dozen law enforcement agencies were there. Some of them dispensed Cipro, some of them were doing nasal swabs on all the employees. And then she says by Saturday evening, it was still unclear whether the powder contained anthrax. Two preliminary tests had come back negative and a third definitive test seemed to suggest that the powder was benign. But then she goes on to say whoever did this had spread panic with only a few anthrax spores. This was a relatively inexpensive way to spread maximum terror without having to solve the technical challenges of spreading the disease widely. And then I guess by Sunday, October 14th, when she wrote this, it still wasn't known that this was a hoax or not in her letter. She says, maybe there was anthrax in my letter, or maybe there wasn't. So I question Judith Miller's statement here about how whoever did this found an inexpensive way to spread maximum terror. Well, that's what it seems like her article itself is designed to do, because none of the actual real anthrax letters, mind you, let off a cloud of powder. And it does seem odd that she seems to just anticipate the fact that this is a hoax and it's not real. Why is that? Journalist Marcy Wheeler, who turned into quite the Russiagator later on in her career, but originally was doing some really good reporting on the anthrax attacks. Marcy Wheeler herself implies that Judith Miller seemed to anticipate this being a hoax attack, even though Bill Patrick, her mentor, had actually told her the opposite I have a lot of the advice and the things that she's reciting in this article in Judith Miller's article, she said that Bill told me that anthrax itself had no smell and was almost never white. By now, I was no stranger to this deadly agent. So what Judith Miller is saying in her own words is that she actually decided that this was probably a hoax because it was white, and that anthrax weaponizing anthrax was almost never white. Well, in reality, what Bill Patrick actually told her and Marcy Wheeler points this out, is that Bill Patrick told her that the white form of anthrax, if you ever see it, is the most deadly form. And then Marcy Wheeler says that she had seen how this demonstration of weaponized biological agents can disperse in the air. She even had her own vial of stimulant as a reminder. And yet she, quote, tried to dust off the powder that clung to her pants and shoes. This is the worst possible thing she could have done if the material in the letter had been real anthrax. Even if the emergency personnel who responded to the office hadn't realized it, Miller should have known that her clothing should have been in the bag that was used to remove the letter and recovered powder. Did Miller know before she received the letter that her anthrax would be a hoax? And according to Marcy Wheeler, the preparation in the Dashel and the Leahy letters, the real anthrax letters, was white. So the actual real weaponized anthrax in those letters apparently was white according to Marcy Wheeler. And I don't know if that's been verified. And Marcy Wheeler ends by saying, so yes, Judy and Bill, anthrax bore preparations are, quote, almost never white, but when they are, it's pretty damned important. Well, because that's when they would be the most deadly. Apparently, Judith Miller's letter actually also didn't just have threats against the Sears Tower in Chicago in them. They also had threats against President Bush specifically, according to Robert Graysmith in his book. Now, how come we don't know exactly what her letter said she talks about everything else about what happened to her except she doesn't even discuss the specific content of the letter and what it said why not we need to be able to see these hoax letters and all the envelopes they were sent in in order to be able to do a proper handwriting comparison and from what i've read preparing for this podcast is that there are other independent researchers, including Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, Don Foster for Vanity Fair, whose article was essentially zapped by the Stephen Hatfield lawsuit off of Vanity Fair. They actually have a digital archive of the issue that it's supposed to be in, but all the pages in which the article is supposed to appear says content removed. You can still find this article, though, in archive form. But Don Foster for Vanity Fair... Rudy Giuliani himself, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, and Special Agent Marwin all said statements that they actually had their eyes on other St. Petersburg hoax letters and envelopes, and they thought that the handwriting was similar to the New Jersey real anthrax letters. For example, here's what it says in another story from ABC News. There was some similarity in the handwriting on both letters, Agent Marwin told the Associated Press, declining to discuss the contents. Both were anonymous letters with no return address. It's talking about the FBI agent there is actually talking about the St. Petersburg letters as having similar handwriting. So that might be a slip-up on their part if they wanted to bury this angle of the investigation later on, that they actually came out and started saying that the handwriting looks similar. That's one of the only statements that I found where an official came on record and said that, besides Giuliani. Now, the other two people I mentioned, Don Foster and Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, are independent investigators. Now, there's indications that Don Foster of Vanity Fair actually had his eyes on all of the St. Petersburg hoax letters and the real letters, which are already made available to the public. But this put him in a unique position to be able to assess himself that the handwriting looked similar when you take all the St. Petersburg letters and the New Jersey real letters together. Now, I don't feel that I'm reading between the lines in his own quotes, so you can decide based on what I'm about to read to you what, what this means. So Don Foster says this in his Vanity Fair article. Six months after the first deadly powder-bearing letter was mailed, five months after my initial call from the FBI, I still only had the four anthrax letters and envelopes, the three bio-threats mailed nearly simultaneously from St. Petersburg and the Quantico letter. The Quantico letter he's referring to was something that was sent, that arrived to Quantico at the FBI offices before the anthrax attacks happened, trying to frame this Egyptian scientist at U.S. Amrid. So Don Foster was looking at that as, since it had foreknowledge of the attacks, it seemed to be related. But he's saying here that he had the four anthrax letters on envelopes, the three bio-threats mailed, Nearly simultaneously from Saint Petersburg, I'm assuming he means the Troxler letter, the Miller letter, and the Brokaw letter, and he says the Quantico letter, which is the letter that was trying to frame up Egyptian scientist Assad, that people believe the Camel Club is responsible for, which includes Philip Zack and Marion Rippey. Barring further incidents, we would have to look for other extant writings by the anthrax killer. But where does one even begin looking? Because the New Jersey and Florida letters seemed related and possibly collaborative. I search for stories of past so-called hoaxes. And then he goes into this story about how Hatfield was sort of in the area or in the vicinity when a anthrax hoax was sent to Bernay Brith, a sort of Jewish organization. I don't know very much about them, but other, other people probably can f- fill in some of the blanks there. But, and then he says, but in February 2002, shortly after I advanced his candidacy, talking about Hatfield, to my contact at the FBI, I was told that Mr. Hatfield had a good alibi. A month later, when I had pressed the issue, I was told, look, Don, maybe you're spending too much time on this. I decided to give it a rest, but first I faxed a comparative handwriting sample, so I came out from Hatfield to all the material that he just mentioned, to FBI headquarters, with examples of Hatfield's printing on the left and printing by the anthrax offender on the right. I'm not a handwriting expert, so I supplied the document without comment. A week later, I got a thank you call. Then Don Foster seems to imply that when you take all the handwriting together from all the fake letters, the real letters, and the Quantico letter, that it seems to imply that it matches the handwriting of a female officer that Don Foster says was a perfect match of a female officer from some 40 U.S. AMRID employees. He said that I wrote a detailed report on the evidence, but the Anthrax Task Force declined to follow through. The Quantico letter had already been declared a hoax, and zero filed as part of the 9-11 investigation. Now, I'm not going to go too much into the Quantico letter here. You can read about it later, having to do with Philip Zack. But what's interesting is he says that the handwriting seems to match not just Hadfield, according to him, but also a female officer at US Amarillo. Which female officer is he talking about? Well, doing some cross-referencing and sort of reverse engineering of this story, it is very easy to figure out who he's talking about. And he's talking about Marion K. Rippey of the Camel Club associated with Philip Zack, who was accused of basically stealing anthrax from U.S. Amarad in, I think, sometime in the late 90s. And there was a really, really good Hartford Current uh, investigative series on this event. And there are people who think this is slam dunk, case closed, that they're the anthrax killers because of this. I mean, it's definitely a compelling part of the case, and it should be looked at. But I think the point I'm trying to get to here is that A journalist and actually many other people, not just journalists and researchers, but several other people have gone on public record saying that they've seen all these hoax letters themselves. They've seen them with their own eyes. So these must be floating around somewhere. So let's hope that someone could get a copy of one of these other hoax letters. And then let's maybe even, why not hire an actual handwriting analysis expert to decide if it's by the same person who did the real New Jersey anthrax letters at the very least. If that's the case, then we can just essentially prove that the FBI cut out a really important part of the investigation publicly because it basically led them in a different direction than Bruce Ivins. All we have, though, of those hoax letters is the Troxler envelope. We don't even have the letter that came in his envelope. Well, I tried to search for the letter, ended up making about 40 phone calls to different people in St. Petersburg, and eventually came up empty-handed. But I did end up getting in contact with Howard Troxler. Right before recording this podcast, I actually got a chance to speak to St. Petersburg Times reporter Howard Troxler, who received an anthrax hoax letter basically before any of the real anthrax letters reached their targets. To me, he was an important person to talk to to fill in some pieces of this puzzle. How is this not related? And I had a lot of questions for him. And unfortunately, because he was sort of led to believe there was absolutely no connection between this and the actual real anthrax letters, he never really felt it was that big of a deal what happened to him. He just thought it was kind of a random thing. Now, I tried to take really detailed notes when I was talking to Howard. Um, He gave me permission to quote him. And so I'm just going to go through a little bit of what he and I talked about. Now, just give you some backstory, and he reiterated this to me um, on the phone call that we had. But he writes an editorial himself about his own experience. He says, "Then there's anthrax. Naturally, it had to be Florida, didn't it? Surely it was just some weird incident involving the tabloids and not part of a greater scheme. They said that somebody sent them the stuff in an envelope. Honestly." Would that be the terrorist order of priorities, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, maybe the White House, and then America's scandal sheets? This is what I was saying Tuesday morning just before grabbing a bite for lunch, coming back and getting my mail out of the mailbox. One letter, a standard business envelope, had my name scrawled in front with no return address. On the back across the flaps was a sticker depicting the American flag turned upside down. I started to open it and a few grains of something white kind of like salt or sugar poured out there was more of it inside what would you do at this point a month ago i would have read it and thrown it in the crackpot file now i announced to the room in general excuse me i have an envelope full of white powder here somebody called security the police came and then the fire department's hazardous materials team who carefully sealed it up and took it away Everybody was efficient, professional, and impressive. I apologize for taking their time, but they said this was the right way to do things. I was glad they were there. Everybody, including me, said about 100 times, better safe than sorry, a new national motto. And he's quoting some random person in the office. I really think there's a link to your letter and to the terrorists talking about the 9-11 terrorists. Now, what happened was this letter came back negative. But this is really where the story ends, oddly enough. This is what I found out through talking to Howard, is that really nothing came of this after this. You would have expected the CDC to come, somebody from the FBI to come and question their employees asking about this letter. He's referencing the attack on the AMI building about some weird incident involving the tabloids, he said. But here's what we know for sure based on my conversation with Howard. I conducted this phone interview, October 4th, 2021, one day before the 20th anniversary of the death of Robert Stevens. First, I just sort of assumed that he had already talked to the FBI. Now, this is my, I guess this is a flaw that I have is I, I'm not the best questioner in terms of, I need to probably learn how to ask questions better sometimes because I just sort of already assumed that, well, of course the FBI talked to him if they, you know, talked to Judith Miller and all these people got involved in the Judith Miller thing. So I said, you know, did the FBI write this off as a coincidence that someone else was inspired by 9-11, you know, a different person? Where did they go with this with you? Did they suggest anything? And then I just sort of stopped myself and I was like, well, did they actually even talk to you? I'm assuming they talked to you. Howard says that it seems like early on that they talked to him, but he doesn't remember specifically. And then he stops himself and says, you know what? I actually don't remember talking to those guys early on and then he said and then if i did talk to them it would have been this was his words so perfunctory so then i asked him that someone must have tested his letter to determine it was fake and if so who was it he says yes someone did test it yeah it wasn't anthrax and i said well was it the cdc he says he doesn't think so he doesn't remember and he says it was local i mean if we look at our map uh that i referenced on the last two episodes There is a BSL level three lab in Tampa, Florida. Maybe that's where they examined it. There's also FBI building um, in Tampa. That's not too far away from where the St. Petersburg Times was. But what I found interesting is that Howard says that, you know, if he did even encounter the FBI at all during this, that it was just so perfunctory that he doesn't even remember it. And he didn't seem like a guy that had like a bad memory or anything. It just... He couldn't say for sure that he didn't talk to them, but it wasn't notable at all. Like they didn't really ask him, you know, any questions. He says the first thing that happened was that the company security got involved when he announced that, you know, he had this envelope of white powder to the office. It was like, gee, guys, uh, you know, I got an envelope of white powder here. What do I do? And he just sort of stopped and announced it to the office. The St. Petersburg Times Security Company for the building, they intervened first And the first thing they did was he said they put down some plastic sheeting over everything because he had basically just dumped all this white powder over himself. He said that he had no experience with the thing, that no one there had any experience with this. They had no idea that there were other hoax letters flying around or what the protocol should be. He says he got tested the next morning. He believes they stuck a swab up his nose and it was negative. And then he says that all he remembers hearing after that about what happened, he talked to the fire department and he talked to the police, but like they came on site. You know, he talked to them like on site. Nobody like interviewed, did like follow-up interviews. He says that all he remembers after this was he got told by the company's security staff, someone, a security guard essentially, told him that the powder in the envelope wasn't anthrax, that it was cornstarch. That's how he ended up finding out that it wasn't anthrax. So he got tested negative for anthrax infection at the hospital, and then he found out from a security guard a couple days later that it was cornstarch. I asked him what the consistency of the powder was like in the envelope. I said, was it clumpy? Was it like more like powdered sugar? Because I guess if it was clumpy, that would be more like cornstarch. And he said it was more like powdered sugar and not clumpy, which doesn't sound as much like cornstarch. And I said, was there was it fine enough powder where if, when you open this envelope, did any of it float into the air? He said, no, that it was much more of just like a kitchen sort of baking compound kind of thing. It didn't seem like, you know, it was dispersing into the air. And I said, you mean like a flour? And then he said, yeah, you know, sugar, cornstarch, flour. And then he said, but I'm pretty sure I remember them saying it was cornstarch. And he said that it wasn't like a CDC person or anything who took him to the hospital. It was just they told him the fire department and the police told him to go to the hospital. He went, he got swabbed there. He doesn't remember any actual like hazmat people coming into the St. Petersburg Times. He says he basically doesn't remember. Now I have pictures showing the St. Petersburg Times with a very light, not very like secure or safe, you know, I don't know what level you would consider full hazmat suits, hot suits or whatever. But nobody's like wearing any protective gear and they, but it says that they're a hazmat team that's there. So I don't know if that's photograph of the hazmat team in operation, just not protecting themselves or if there was another team that came in. He doesn't remember one coming in. All he remembers was the fire truck, um, which would have been the hazmat team that they claim they brought in. But again, it might have just been like a really casual thing, not like wearing hazmat suits. I asked him why he would have been targeted or why he would have been targeted in one of them specifically Howard Troxler. And he said, this just is just total speculation on his part, but that there might've been some Florida nexus, Florida connection to this all, because I should mention at this point in the conversation, Howard and I had already come to an agreement. I had already convinced him and showed him that the timeline of the hoax letters and the real letters were eerily close together that just the prescience on the hoaxers part to know to basically do the exact same thing at the same time as the real killers was very odd and that perhaps these were the same people or same group of people working together. Howard was already relatively convinced at this point in the conversation that that was the truth. So he's his mind, I think, is starting to go in this direction of, well, was there a Florida nexus for the anthrax attacks? Speaking for myself right now, just you as an audience i think that there personally was some florida connection to the anthrax attacks i even thought that before uh the saint petersburg hoax letters were discovered and he says that if it had some florida connection that there was somebody that had experience in florida who basically kind of knew about his name for being a reporter that they didn't like who they thought in his own words was a real asshole i think i'll send one to him too that guy in saint petersburg um, those are Howard's words. That's what he thinks would be the motive for doing it. That could also be the motive for someone who was associated with the real anthrax killers or who was part of a network of real anthrax killers who decided to just randomly knew about this reporter because they had familiarity with Florida. And they're like, oh, that, that that guy, let's just address one random letter to him. He says that he just doesn't think it makes sense in any other way because he would have been Someone who would have been completely under the radar outside of Florida. He wasn't on any national things at all. And I reminded him that he had been on C SPAN once because I found like a random clip of him, but he thought that was completely, you know, ridiculous to think that someone out of state would have heard of him through uh, a C SPAN <laughs> performance. And I agree. I kind of tend to agree with him that whoever did this did it because they had some familiarity with Florida. They weren't just randomly sending these from Florida. Now, Howard, uh, I know I had to clue him in on a lot of these details because he apparently just didn't really look back into this. The FBI, as far as he remembers, never followed up and interviewed him to establish a more specific timeline. Somebody already took the letter. I'm thinking it was the police department at the time who later worked with the FBI. So the FBI probably still has that letter now. But he doesn't have the letter anymore, apparently. I asked him if he has the letter, if he has the envelope. He said no. But really quickly, I will say that the Letter inside the envelope, I asked him specifically, was it handwritten? He said yes. I said, did it reference 9 11? He said no. He did think it was interesting that it referenced the Tampa bridge collapse because he thinks that that's another weird local thing to drop in there. And he, I guess, he doesn't think it's weird that whoever did this also targeted the National Enquirer because the National Enquirer, you know, if you want to lump in all these things together, like New York Post, National Enquirer, NBC News, That's not a weird one. He thinks his one is weirder, meaning if these are all linked together, that him being a target is weirder, and it implies a local connection to it. The Tampa Bay Bridge thing applies a local connection, perhaps, or a reference, someone wanting to appear local. Now, I also just had to fill Howard in with this idea that the FBI originally was looking into a Florida connection, like a local connection with the anthrax attacks because of the AMI employee Mike Irish who happened to be the spouse of Gloria Irish, who showed 9-11 hijackers' apartments. So the FBI was looking into a Florida connection originally in that regard. Howard says that he doesn't remember being interviewed by anybody. And the reason that that's notable is because if these are connected, which just upon a visual ex- inspection and when you line up the timeline and then the Florida connection too, it does seem like they're connected to the real anthrax killers. It, it just... Would make sense if they were. Why the FBI or anybody didn't follow up and interview Howard is really strange, I think. Why were they so quick to quarantine and interview Judith Miller and treat her case so seriously just because she's famous, more of a famous notable reporter? That's not how investigations work. Just because someone is the target of such a threat who's famous doesn't mean they get way more focus in the investigation than a person who's not as famous. That's not how you conduct an investigation. Howard said that he's never had anyone suggest to him that this hoax guy who sent these letters, one to him and another to Judith Miller, was connected to this other person. In his mind, he's thinking this just as sort of like the activity of like what a nut would do, like a local Florida, you know, nut job, he's gotten letters like this before, would do. And he says it doesn't really have similarity to whoever sent these other anthrax letters you know if this was like a a scientist bioweapons person just doesn't seem like something they would do is like act like a nut and so i had to remind him that the first anthrax murder was apparently delivered via a letter that was written under the guise of being a stalker of jennifer lopez so he found that pretty interesting and so he sort of just starts questioning me because i i go back and forth with him about what i think some of my theories were and interestingly howard seems to agree with me that based on everything i'm telling him that you know one of the darker theories may be true that this was actually designed to create just enough fear and hysteria in order to get us into some kind of post 9 11 you know iraq war lubricated skids era war on terror era and that you know he and then i guess one of his questions was what would be the reason why the perpetrators of the real attacks would also send out hoax attacks if they had the ability to send out real attacks. I mean, he said, would that mean that the supply would be limited? And I said to him that, yes, it would mean that the supply could be limited uh, because there's also evidence to suggest that whoever was sending out the real letters used different grades of anthrax in different letters, almost like as if they didn't make a huge or have access to a huge batch of it. That's possible. So some evidence does imply that. And so I thought, And I wrote down this exact quote of Howard because I thought it was an interesting response. He said, so you want to save your bullets, but you still want to shoot some blanks out there to make people think there's shots flying around all over the place. And I said, sure. And he said, that's not bad. I was surprised that he kind of just went totally along with my some of my darker, more, I guess, extreme theories about, you know, this being some kind of neoconservative Bush deep state, you know, linked event of some kind. And he goes on to say, he says, this in a way supports your emphasis on the fact, on the timing of these letters. I'm just some dumbass sitting there opening the mail. But this person who sent it knew either it was a huge coincidence that they sent these, whatever it was, cornstarch, sugar, whatever. Either it was a huge coincidence that they sent these, or it wasn't a coincidence. And he said, so that's basically your theory. And I said, yeah. And so what he means by that is that my theory is that this was not a coincidence. Whoever sent these hoax letters also was involved somehow in sending the other four real anthrax letters. And then it is not a coincidence. This is not a parallel thinking. Two different people, crazy people, one of them sending real anthrax, one of them sending fake anthrax. This was linked together in some way. And It has to be. And Howard essentially seemed to lean towards my theory he was very open to talking about things like false flag aspects of this i even you know went into a little bit of the strangeness with the nine eleven flight schools i explained to him a little bit of my research you know sort of linking some of these things together with the anthrax he seemed very open to it so you know this could just be a case of something where because it wasn't maybe pointed out to him before it's just something that never really crossed his mind and you know once you show someone the timeline of this i think it's really hard to deny that this had to be related. So I guess the question is, why did the FBI just like brush this under the rug and how how did this get brushed under the rug to such an extent where it took Gumby sort of passing this in my direction to even hear about this? I mean, that absolutely blows my mind because this throws a wrench in the entire case against Bruce Ivins. Unless there's something out there, and I'm not going to discount the possibility of this, just technically speaking, unless there's something out there showing that Bruce Ivins was in Florida around the time of September 20th, around St. Petersburg, Florida, unless there's something showing that, that the FBI or the government doesn't release for some reason, then this just does not make any sense. There's no way that this could have been Bruce Ivins and that he snuck away with the FBI not knowing. Once to New Jersey, where they already think they can establish a timeline of him sneaking away, but then another time in Florida, apparently two days later, to do this. And Giuliani himself, as you saw, as you heard earlier, Giuliani, a man who is very suspiciously also connected to the anthrax cover up, I would say, agrees with me that the handwriting between the two envelopes looks similar, but actually not exactly agreeing with me because I'm comparing two other envelopes. He's not talking about the Howard Troxler envelope, he's talking about the Judith Miller envelope that I can't see, and he's saying that one looks similar. So if we take what Giuliani is saying and stack it with what I'm saying and with what you can see with your own eyes and we, let's just take it face value. This is the only thing we're going to trust Giuliani on right here, just for the sake of argument. Take both of those things together. Then what he is saying, what we can see is that all of the hoax anthrax letters, part of this St. Petersburg send out and the real anthrax letters had similar handwriting. What are the fucking chances of that if they're not related? I mean, this is just, to me, one of the craziest revelations ever. And hopefully you followed me up until this point because I know I've just thrown a lot of details at you. Some of this might have been hard to follow. I hope you followed it. And Maybe this is going to be a two-part episode because I think there's more to tell you that can fill up a whole other episode. Why I think Bruce Ivins is not the killer. How I've looked again at the Anthrax files and how I'm going to provide to you links to dumps from all the FBI files just in a giant archive you can look at yourself, CDC files, lawsuit files, publicly posted files, all these things together. I've looked back into all of these things, and there's some new things that have popped out to me that I think are worth discussing on the 20th anniversary of the 2001 anthrax attacks. One of them is that the FBI, in their investigation of Bruce Ivins and naming him as the main suspect in their investigation, and I should say, in case I didn't already mention and shit, I'm sorry if I didn't, but Bruce Ivins, when he got named and fingered by the FBI, they claimed that he killed himself before they could bring charges. So he didn't even get charged with a crime, he just ended up apparently freaking out and killing himself before they charged him with the crime. That's how conveniently it worked out for them. There were lots of weird twists and turns in the FBI investigation. They even at one point were really aggressively going after a man named Stephen Hatfill, And then he sort of came out and publicly sparred with them about his innocence or proclaimed innocence and successfully sued the U.S. government for about $6 million for naming him. And then later, the FBI ended up narrowing their investigation on Bruce Ivins, who was conveniently dead from apparent suicide before they could bring charges to him. But here's one thing that I learned that I had already known probably, but there are just so many details I'd forgot. this specific one, is that you can verify this in any of the investigative materials out there about Amerithrax and any of the FBI files that they searched and searched and searched and swabbed and swabbed and swabbed Bruce Ivan's personal property, his home, his room, his bathroom, car, his car seat for anthrax spores. And guess how many anthrax spores and where these anthrax spores that they found were located? Well, the answer to the first question is they found zero anthrax spores and there were zero locations that they found where anthrax spores were located because they found no spores of any kind in any of Ivan's locations, or personal property, or vehicles. How is this possible if the weaponized anthrax found in the letters was so weaponized that it went through ventilation systems and infected people in adjoining rooms and offices through the ventilation system? How is that possible? These are spores meant to float in the air. How did Bruce Ivins do such an amazing job of Destroying all the evidence in his home from this anthrax strain that was known to have been found in the letters. But then he was dumb enough, according to the FBI, to hand over the murder weapon to him as he was aiding them in their investigation early on, as Bruce Ivins was. Bruce Ivins was originally working with the FBI not too long after the attacks themselves to help them in their investigation. And he gave over to them a sample of AIM strain from the lab for them to check to see and test DNA of to see if it might actually be the same anthrax used in the letters. And later on, much later on, the FBI claims they tested this flask that Ivans gave them and it was a hit. It was indeed the murder weapon that he had just handed over to them. So they're saying that he's smart enough to destroy all evidence Of any trace of any anthrax spores in his home or personal property, but dumb enough to hand over the murder weapon directly to them as a consultant in the investigation. Just does not make any sense. And how is it possible that Bruce Ivins could have weaponized these anthrax spores to the degree that they were described to have been weaponized by the FBI if almost no witnesses, even in the publicly available FBI files, validate that theory that he could have done this on his own according to a pro publica investigation without a fermenter it would have taken ivan's 30 to 50 weeks of continuous labor to brew spores for the letters it also says that fbi searches years later found no traces of these supposed trace back to the murder weapon anthrax spores to the hot, sweet, lab, or drying equipment in Fort Detrick, Maryland. The only DNA evidence that they linked to Bruce Ivins was from a flask, and they claim it matched the DNA of the anthrax in the letters. Now, as you already know, hopefully from being someone who's followed this, the National Academy of Sciences, quasi-independent body of the U.S. government, was hired by the FBI to verify their DNA evidence. The National Academy of Sciences actually said that their DNA evidence was bunk and that there really wasn't strong evidence pointing to a DNA match between the flask that Ivan's handed to the FBI spores in the anthrax letters. Now again, it's a 7-hour round trip drive from Fort Dietrich, Maryland, where Ivan's would have had to transport anthrax directly from the mailboxes in New Jersey. According to FBI, they say that he would have had to travel overnight. And that's what they think that he did. And they think that he did this under the guise of a Pennsylvania business trip that was fake. But there are definitely more things that I want to talk to you about having to do with the anthrax attacks. Not just the Bruce Ivan stuff I just previewed for you here. But also stuff having to do with Rudy Giuliani's anthrax cleanup company, Bio One. And also the new things I found on-the-map approach to 9-11 and Anthrax, and how that links together with people like Rudy Giuliani, other potential things happening in Florida, and also how Maureen Stevens, the spouse of Robert Stevens, who was the first death from Anthrax in the Anthrax murders, how she actually filed a lawsuit against not just the U.S. government for her husband's death, but she also sued a private defense contractor who's also done CIA contracting work that manufactures anthrax named Battelle. And in addition to that, she also sued another company named Bioport. Bioport is none other than Robert Cadlick's company. And Robert Cadlick is infamously one of the people who organized Operation Dark Winter. And Robert Cadlick also stars in Dark Winter as the man who says the titular line in the fake news broadcast where he says it's going to be a very dark winter in america that's robert kadlik so stay tuned for the next episode i'm not sure if it's going to come out immediately after this one in fact it probably won't abby and i will probably do something unrelated to anthrax but i promise you there will be a second half of this And I also promise you eventually there will be a second half to the Schrodinger's Super Patriot episode. But here I'm going to preview some of the research that's probably going to eventually appear on that podcast in a more polished and true crime style form. Let's take a second to have a moment of silence for all of the victims in the 2001 anthrax attacks. Rest in peace, Robert Stevens. Rest in peace, Thomas Morris Jr. Rest in peace, Joseph Kersine. Rest in peace, Kathy Nguyen. And rest in peace, Ottilie Lundgren, who all perished from forms of inhalation anthrax. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. And please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash media roots radio. Thanks for listening.